Hey everyone, uh, welcome to the very first edition of the Full Stack Radio Podcast, where we talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration. I'm Adam Wathen, and I'm here today with Matt Stouffer of Titan Co. How's it going, Matt? It's great. How's it going, man? Good, man. Yeah, this is exciting, the first episode, and you're privileged enough to be on it. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I, I feel awesome. I didn't know this was the first. I figured there's, you know, like, this is old hat for you. You know, you've already had 10 people on, so I'm... I'm geeking out right now. No, you're, you're the guinea pig, so we'll All right. see how it goes. So I, I guess uh, for anyone who isn't familiar with you, or do you mind just giving us a brief kind of background on uh, what you've been up to and what you guys do at Titan Co. and what keeps you busy? Yeah, sure. So um, I came out of uh, design and front-end development. I did user experience and user interaction, and but you know I needed to do enough front-end development, actually, to make my designs do something. And I like front-end. Um, it turns out I, I'm a lot better developer than I am a designer, and so kind of shifted more and more towards the back-end. And over the last few years, I've kind of transitioned from working in you know, CodeIgniter and plain old PHP. Um, I did a little bit of Rails for a while and then got, a, got sucked into the Laravel world. Um, and so I've been kind of pretty involved in Laravel and just kind of teaching a lot of people who are new to Laravel about how to use it. And I used to be a teacher. I studied education. So kind of sharing kind of what I'm learning as I go has been a fun way for me to learn. Um, so that's kind of how I'm a little known in the community, um, both as kind of someone who's a little more front endy and then also as like a teacher. Um, in terms of Titan, I'm the partner and technical director at Titan, which is a web uh, development consultancy based out of Chicago, Illinois, and we're spread out all across the U.S. So we got folks in the West Coast and the East Coast and I'm in Gainesville, Florida, and we actually have some full-time contractors in the UK and Amsterdam, so we're trying to spread it, uh, spread it out internationally as well. So, and we do, still working on how to describe it, we try to take on challenging uh, problems. So sometimes those challenging problems are, you know, responsive CSS uh, across multiple devices with JavaScript doing 3D manipulations and calculations, and sometimes that is dealing with the ugliest, you know, legacy database systems and, you know, PHP 4 that you've ever seen in your life. So whatever it is, it tends to be something that's pretty complex and we just love kind of coming up with cool solutions to complex problems. Very cool. Uh, so the reason I wanted to have you on the show is you wrote a really cool and interesting article, I guess it was a few months back on your blog, about uh, the CSS approach that you guys kind of take and how you kind of take the best of all these different modern CSS methodologies. So I guess what I first wanted to ask you is how long do you feel like you've been writing what you would call good CSS? <laughs> oh man, Time's, time span, I'm going to say a couple of years. Um, there was a time when everyone was kind of just popping out this new kind of object-oriented CSS, and then you've got Smacks, and you've got um, uh, the CSS wizardry guy, and... Uh, Man, who are the other folks working at that? There's a couple of different people. And at the same time, they're all kind of starting to say, hey, we can write better CSS. And at the same time, we're also seeing um, less and SAS come about. And all of a sudden, just kind of the front end had this explosion of new tools. And so I think probably for the last, maybe, you know what? It was when we did Gene.com, and that was end of 2011. So yeah, a couple, couple of years of really just digging into how to write CSS well. Cool. So, so I think the thing with CSS too, right, is there's kind of two sides of it. There's the one which is just making it do what you want it to do, right. which is a, a huge challenge on its own a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, the things that we're trying to do with uh, CSS and in the browser these days are not things that the the platform was ever really meant to be able to do, right? I know 
anytime I've ever had to put something together in like WPF or something on, in .NET and you have to build a, any sort of layout, after you've been deep in CSS for so long, you can't believe like how trivial and easy <laughs> it is to do in any sort of layout engine that's like designed to work the way we want CSS to work. That's right. So I feel like there's that side of it, which is crazy on its own. But then the the really underappreciated one, I feel like, is the more architecture side of things and knowing how to conceptually think about how you separate what different styles are doing and what they're responsible for and, and how to make it uh, maintainable in the future and also resilient, I guess, to, to changes that you're making. And I've tried a couple things in the past that I thought were great ideas at the time that uh, turned out to be terrible ideas <laughs> that I'm only just learning from now. So I kind of wanted to ask you uh, kind of what your path, I guess, was like things that maybe you tried that you thought were good ideas at one point that didn't work out and uh, or common mistakes that you see other people making, even if they're kind of past the point of just hacking together some CSS and a style sheet and and trying to do good work, maybe just kind of paths that they've taken that are, are totally the wrong way to go or or just kind of things that you've seen that you think a lot of people could be doing better or or could be thinking about differently that would make what they're coming up with better <laughs> yeah definitely uh there's when you say I, I could just hear you moving in the direction of where have you massively screwed it up and i just got one main thing that i want to point out and it kind of leads us to some others so when we were first thinking about how to architect css well because you're talking about you know massive site systems where you've got thousands of pages and hundreds of different you know modules and trying to understand how is it going to work to make them play nicely together um in those spaces, uh, it's really difficult to just say that the, the classic way of doing it, which is just, hey, hand me a PSD and I'm just going to write the CSS that describes everything I see. And then I look at page two and then I just describe the CSS for that, look at page three. When you're getting in these much larger sites, you really got to be more intentional. And so one of the things we thought about was um, kind of namespacing. And there was some article going around a couple of years ago where they said, you know, isn't it irritating that every single time you use an H2, you know, a header to every anywhere in your site, you have to um, undo whatever you set for your default H2 styles. You know, and so they said, you know, because we all kind of set the H2 to be whatever you think it should be, and that's what it is for your body type. But then every single time you use it in a sidebar or in a footer or whatever, you got to unset it. So here's this really great idea: let's namespace it within the the body of the 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 um the thing. So let's namespace it within, I don't know, um namespace within dot article or dot body or dot post or something and then you're only doing those default styles to h1 h2 p all that kind of stuff within that namespace it's this really clever idea so we thought um so that all the rest of the h2s in the site all the rest of the h1s in the site are just unadulterated um the problem with that which we discovered months and months into the process is um that by default increases the specificity on those elements uh, descriptors um, by one. And so, for example, the default plain Jane um, H2 selector for all our body text is now dot post space H2. And so the moment you want to do a modifier to that, you have to, you can't just say dot page dash title for the class or something like that, because that's less specific than dot post space H2. And so all of a sudden, you're all these times you just need to do simple modifications and now you've got to decide, well, how am I going to overcome that specificity? Am I going to say, you know, and what we ended up doing most often is dot post dash title comma dot post 
or whatever the, the namespace was, dot page, space, dot post, dash title. And it's just this mess uh, over and over and over, having to repeat the namespace and having modules that really shouldn't care about being in that namespace, now having to care of it because of the specificity wars. It was a it was an absolute mess. And to be honest to me, that was that was my biggest mistake. But also, when I see people making mistakes, it's almost always having to do with descendants and specificity and just not recognizing that... Um, while, especially now that we have things like SAS and less that allow us to use like indentation within our braces to, to just really beautifully and easily create these descendant trees, we don't realize that, 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 of course, there's the performance issues, the more descendants you have and all that kind of stuff you're running into issues. But over time, browsers are going to make that better. But the other thing we're running into is these specificity issues, and those are really difficult to manage, especially because you don't see them coming until it's way too late. And then you're stuck up a creek and you got nothing to do. So for us, that's why we ended up actually getting into the BEM or BEM syntaxes because it flattens everything out. So yeah, I think the biggest thing that we end up seeing people do is just not understanding the the impact, um, the many impacts of really deep uh, descendant selectors. Yeah, that's totally the problem that I've run into myself as well. So um, I was very dogmatic about the idea of uh, semantic markup right and <laughs> and and semantic class names too which yep. I've, I've totally done a 180 on but <laughs> but at the time i wanted my markup to be as pure as possible like if i could just create um a div that was like in the case of like the podcast site that i'm working on right now for this podcast uh we would have a div for like an episode right and it would, mm-hmm. it would have a bunch of stuff inside of it so i would always just have like episode h2 because it's namespaced. It's it's just encapsulated in this idea of an episode, right? And thinking about it in the in the way that we sort of think about stuff in the back end has been like a, a totally the wrong way of doing it, and and that hasn't worked out well for me at all. And anytime I've had to go back to an old project where I've had like five to six selectors deep sometimes because um, less or SAS just makes the nesting seem so mm-hmm. nice. And it, it makes you feel like you're doing it right because mm-hmm. it's like, Oh, I have this block and then I have some stuff that's inside of that block. And that means that it belongs to that. And it's this nice encapsulated thing that I can move around, but it's totally not at all. Right. Yep. Uh, yeah. So I totally agree with you. Um, I was going to ask you, um, with the preprocessor stuff, are there any other sort of features that, encourage bad practices like the nesting stuff i don't have a specific example of this but i've seen some ways that some of the cleverer features like uh extends and that kind of stuff can be abused and i wish i could come up with a particular example but it's usually when and i mean i talk with this with my developers a lot when you're more focused on being clever than you are on you know being effective or being clean or you know whatever um, you end up shooting yourself in the foot a lot. And the preprocessors allow a lot more cleverness than native CSS does. And mm-hmm. as a result, sometimes you get yourself stuck in loops or there's unnecessarily du- duplication. Or, you know, I think I remember seeing something where someone went so far as to like ex- extract out some just extremely common definition, whether it was a font family or something like that. And they made that a single rule that was just that single property. And then they extended that single rule a hundred times across the site. 
And they're like, oh, this is so clever. I can extend it. And at the begin- in the end, you ended up having this massive selector with 100 different, you know, uh, selectors with a single property. And I'm like, okay, there's that's, you know, what are you actually doing? And I think it, it lines up a little bit with what you were just talking about with the, the SAS and the less making it easier. Is that like, for example, the whole nesting thing in SAS, we got so excited because it made our code more beautiful. But the problem is sometimes we get so excited about our code being beautiful or clever at the expense of actually it working well or at actually it providing a good architecture for future development around it or whatever. We're so mm-hmm. excited about how like literally beautiful the indentations are or whatever that we don't realize that it's actually negatively impacting our code. So, Yeah, I think um, Extend is a great example. That was something I was going to bring up as well. Uh, the other thing that I found is... Uh, related to what you're talking about, but basically just mixing in classes at all into other classes. So at first it might seem like if you have a bunch of different button styles, for example, and then like a a default button style that gets applied to all of them, it might seem like a good idea to mix in that button style into your other buttons, right? So you'll have just a button class and then a button primary, a button warning or whatever. And then in your markup, you only have to use button primary. You don't have to use button button primary because you've You've included that button styling in the in the primary button class, and it as someone who's primarily a backend developer, that feels like the right way to do it totally. Mm-hmm. But you're not actually building an inheritance hierarchy the way you think you are in the CSS. It's just the preprocessor just copying and pasting stuff for you, right? So something that was a, a totally revelationary thing for me was just thinking about the idea that your markup is kind of where any of your relationships between classes actually ever mean anything and they don't mm. ever mean anything in the in the actual CSS. So if you're using that kind of single class approach where you have uh, a button primary that includes the styles from the button and that's inside some other container and now you want to style everything inside that container, that's a button. Maybe you want to get rid of the rounded corners on all of the buttons in that particular container or something. Now you can't just say um, sidebar dot button and get rid of the rounded corners on all of them because none of those uh, elements actually have that button class anymore. It's like you actually have to define the parent class in the list of classes for the relationship to actually mean anything. Um, so thinking about things in that way has kind of twisted things around on me a lot. And I've sort of gone the opposite way now where I'm starting to have really, really long and verbose uh, lists of classes on different elements if I want to yeah. combine different things. And even though I think it makes my markup maybe look uglier or something, it's certainly been so much easier to maintain and so much easier to change because instead of your uh, CSS being super tightly coupled to your markup where you know the structure of your HTML is totally duplicated in your in your style sheet, yeah. um, your CSS now is just like a component library where there maybe is a some section of it where it's specifically related to your markup for layout and stuff like that. But everything else is just meant to be totally reusable and you could bring that in on another project and it would actually be useful. Whereas the way I was doing it before, it's like the CSS was single use only. It it could only work for that project. Uh, It's just really interesting that you said that. And earlier you had said, um, I was thinking more like I was as a backend developer when I was doing my front end work. 
because actually it's be, it's be, been becoming a better backend developer that's really improved my understanding of how to do CSS well here. But I, I agree with you. There's some aspects of like, ooh, I want to do this like I do backend code that makes me do the things you're talking about. And I think I love I really love your idea. I was just teaching somebody today about um, BEM. And he's like, so you theoretically could extend and just do button primary. I was like, yes, but I, I like being more explicit with the button, button primary. So I'm 100% with you on that. Um, but so some of the things in the backend in terms of object-oriented programming and object-oriented CSS, I think I think it was a little bit of like an accident that they stumbled into a name that was as appropriate as OOCSS is. Because, of course, they're like, hey, we're doing objects and we're doing, you know, you know, okay, that's great. But the more I think about it, the more I think it's actually really appropriate. Like think about separation of concerns and think about, you know, the single responsibility principle and think about, you know, uh, loose coupling. Like the more I think about these things, I'm like, in encapsulation, I'm like, Yes, that's what I'm doing. I'm building a whole bunch of tiny little CSS modules that can't know about the other ones near them, that need to be able to operate on their own, that can't be too dependent on what's above them or below them or anything that need to function on their own, you know, and that should be easily described by saying it does this one thing. And the BEM syntax is very effective in doing that because your naming is going to get really nasty if you have many levels of embedding. If you're like, because, you know, one of the foundational concepts of BEM is that it's you know, block element modifier. And so what block element, 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 element modifier, you know, like that just doesn't fit and it, and it looks silly. And so it kind of helps. These are just, we're putting constraints on ourselves to write better and more modular and smaller chunks of code. And as I'm writing better and better backend code, it's the same thing. I get smaller classes that are simpler that do less, you know, I never thought about it that way, but I guess like the analogy that kind of popped into my head when you said that is when you're unit testing and you have to mock seven classes for something. Yeah. It's kind of the same as when you have like these seven subcomponents of some component and it's not necessarily going to prevent you from doing it, but it's, it's like a CSS smell, right? Exactly. It's like, yeah, exactly. totally. So that's pretty interesting. The thing that I think um, that I didn't realize right away with the object oriented CSS stuff was that even though it's called object oriented CSS, it doesn't work without approaching it in your markup a certain way as well right it's not just about the style sheet it's about how you use that stuff in the markup and how you can combine this stuff and how you apply your modifiers like the base class has to be there for you to apply a modifier class and i I don't know it's um it's been interesting for me there's some things that i'm still uh struggling with and i'd like to get your input on this actually is where do you kind of draw the line between what do you consider too presentational, I guess, um, when you're creating these components or utility classes? Or um, at what point does it almost feel like you're just kind of doing inline styles again? Because I've, yeah. I've almost felt like I've got to that point sometimes where you have like a utility class for capitalizing text or something, which is super convenient to be able to just capitalize text on the fly. But that's a single CSS rule. So is that really any different than just adding a a style attribute you know what i mean yeah i i think um i'm gonna lean pretty heavily on the not going too far in that road maybe a little heavier than i should only because like i've I've got just kind of like a a certain set of internal principles so one of them is um if you look at something like a bootstrap or something you you are not writing new code new css code when you use bootstrap and i'm not hitting on bootstrap but it's a perfect example when you want something to look a certain way, the answer is to apply a certain set of classes. And that's great. But what if you want that to change in another context? Let's say you want that exact same set of things to exist and it's a concept. 
but it needs to appear as a concept three different places. A certain layout, a certain combination of layout and uh, spacing and something else. Well, that's kind of a, a module. If you're repeating that kind of same set of things over and over and over again, it's a module. But if you don't allow yourself the space to call that a module and then name it and then reuse it, then your your code isn't being dry. It's you know dry meaning don't repeat yourself. So all of a sudden you're kind of repeating yourself. And someone could say, well, if you do button and button primary, you're repeating yourself. And I, I say, no, I'm not really. I'm being more explicit. I think there's a little bit of a difference. So to me, if I need to use 15 classes on one element and then five classes on two of its different sub-elements in order to do a certain layout, and I need to do that same layout five different times through the site, I want to identify that layout as like, hey, that is an attribution, a post-attribution layout. You know, whatever. What, maybe it's like the the person's image on the left and the title on the top and the body for the attribution or whatever. I want to just call that a module and I want to reuse it versus having to use, well, that's the float left class and that's the push right pull 20 or whatever. So with the bootstrap, I often would see people putting classes in and I'd say, okay, that's really nice, but what if it needs to change based on some responsive uh, criteria? Or what if you need to reuse that same combination multiple places? And it just kind of, it just gets to the point where you're right. It's just kind of like, well, you replaced you know, uh, font style equals italic or whatever with class italic. You know, there's no difference between those. So for me, I think one of the things we're really just trying to focus on is um, identifying what the modules are, what the, the the independent components and chunks are. And there's a big difference between identifying a chunk or a component versus um a style. So like utility classes tend to really line up more with styles, even if that style is more than just italic, maybe it's italic and black and whatever, but it's not a chunk, right? Like dark, bold, italic or whatever is that, that's not a chunk. That's a utility. So in, in, in general, a lot of those kind of utility class type things, I just kind of shy away from them anyway. And I might use that as a mix-in, you know, maybe there's a, there's a style I'm going to apply regularly. Okay. Well, I'll make a mix-in for that style. And then I will use that mix-in in several different of my components. But that's not a component. It doesn't deserve its own class. Or or maybe I'll use a, um, what's it called in SAS, where you can have something that you extend from, but you use the percentage sign in front of it, so it never actually generates like its own class. Like the placeholder exactly. mix-in thing. Yeah. Exactly. So basically, when I find myself like looking at a situation and I say, if I want to change it you know, based on some responsive thing, or if I want to reuse it somewhere else, or if my designer comes in and says, you know what? that thing is going to remain the same thing, but it's going to look very different X and Y way. If that just totally throws my old system out of whack, if any of those things do, my old system probably was too tightly coupled to the presentation. Yeah. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. It's basically about identifying uh, things that are going to change together. Mm -hmm. Right. Just like, just like when you write code, it's definitely tricky. It's, it seems like almost unsatisfying to me because it's very easy to go too far in any direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's easy to go too far in the pure semantic sort of um, one class for like a parent element and then everything else is like directly targeting yeah. uh, element selectors. And then it's very easy to go too far in the other direction too, where it's like, well, I'm just going to break everything up as much as possible and just combine them in the markup. And so you have to kind of straddle the the balance between them and, and from I guess like a mathematical standpoint, it's 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 frustrating to not know like can't someone just tell me like what the exact right approach is I'm just <laughs> supposed to use for CSS that just lets me land on stuff that's always going to be maintainable and it's always going to be good. And yeah. I think that's a 
something that people look for in a lot of things. I know I've looked for that, that same thing with unit testing and object oriented design. It's like, well, I don't care about the context of this project. I just want the checklist that tells me exactly how to land on the exact perfect design every time. So it's been an interesting journey. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about, which I did briefly talk to you about on Twitter a while ago, but was uh, grids and how grid mm -hmm. stuff fits in with uh, some of these approaches that you outlined in your article. Yeah. I mean, th I think there's there's no universal answer because when one person says grid, they're thinking a very different person or a very different thing than another person that says grid. When I'm thinking about a grid, um, I'm usually thinking about uh, a layout that's split into some arrangement of columns. And I want to ensure that my columns are multiples of some central unit, you know? So if it's a 12 column grid, I'm not using a 12 column grid. I'm creating three columns and I want to ensure that they're all multiples of, you know, one against the 12. So I want to ensure that the left one is two, multiple, two, and then the, the center one is six, and then, you know, whatever. Um, so grid systems make it easier to set up the math for that and make it easier to spin it up quickly. Um, and some grid systems are simple enough that they're not going to add too much weight. Um, but to me, a grid system is more in the bootstrap world. It makes it really easy to get something done. It tightly couples you to its particular implementation. Um, and in order to account for many, many, many options, it's kind of pretty heavy. Um, so for me, I'm sure there's sites where they're just so grid focused that that really matters. But like, for me, I would tend to look at those columns and I'd say, well, what are those columns? And I love, I really love that you're pointing out that our obsession with semantic CSS and class naming is a lot of the reason we got into this kind of descendant selector hell that we're all in. And being willing to reject that a little bit and saying, no, you know, we went too far in that direction, I think is really valuable. And at the same point, somehow understanding our modules and what's going to change together still depends on understanding. And let me throw some more backend stuff in here, a little bit of like the domain of the page of the business of the page. Like so talked about some domain driven design here. <laughs> what, what is the business of the page? What is that thing over there? Okay. Well, maybe the only name you can come up with it is right rail. Maybe that's all the name for it is. But even so, what we know it is, it's the ancillary content to the primary content or the left rail. Well, the left rail may end up being, you can't always call it just the secondary nav because maybe it's secondary nav and the social buttons. And maybe the only way to name it is left rail. But we know that, that that's a thing. And even when that thing gets bumped to the top or the bottom or behind a, you know, a hamburger button when you go on mobile or something, it's still a thing together. It's like you just said, when it changes together. And to me, a grid assumes that that thing is defined by its horizontal location in the page. It's defined by being two columns wide on the left. And to me, it's just not true. Like that thing may be two columns wide and left at the particular desktop view. But like, and I, you know, the biggest, um, the most, and the, the deepest responsive project I've done is gene.com for Genentech. And that was years of work. And that was, we started in 2011. So this was like responsive and OOCSS were both brand new and we're just kind of like digging really deep in this stuff. And so the grid system there is 15 columns wide. It's, it's an uneven number. And so all of a sudden you're like, well, I, I can't just fold in half every time I get to the next breakpoint like you normally do. And that actually was really valuable for us. At first, it was really irritating. It was really valuable to us because it's the, our breakpoints are 15, 13, 11, 9, and then full width. And so we're not, we weren't, we weren't able to use any grid system and we really were forced to identify like, 
And some the right rail, sometimes it's two columns wide. Sometimes it's three columns wide. Sometimes it's two columns wide with a, a one column left push. So we could have, if, you know, if bootstrap was a thing then, and if bootstrap handled 15 column grids, neither of which are the, the case, we could have theoretically done it with just like a million classes. But really what it ended up being is no matter what breakpoint we're at, no matter how many columns wide it is, no matter whatever, because sometimes it's this thing moves to the top, sometimes it moves to the bottom, sometimes it hides, whatever it is, it's always the secondary nav. It's always the, you know, the ancillary content of the right, you know, even if you call it right rail, it's always that, and it might move up and down. So I want to apply presentational classes about grittiness to it at times, but not always. And so for me, SAS shown the most when I was performing the math to calculate the grids for that. And basically SAS was my grid system. And I don't mean SAS with Susie or Compass with Susie. I mean SAS because I defined the modules as they were, and then I used SAS's math to lay them out in a grid-like manner, sometimes in a different grid-like manner, other times, and screw the grid, just wherever the heck I wanted it other times. And I feel a lot freer. Maybe it's a little more work, but I feel so much more free not being locked into a grid system. So that's my diatribe. Cool. So I guess like for me, what I, what I take away from that, um, is you definitely shy away from class names that imply a great appearance in your markup. Yeah, I do. And you will just mix that stuff in, even if it maybe means duplicating the styles in the compiled CSS or, or whatever. Yeah. I think that's kind of where I've been leaning with it as well. Although sometimes it's been easy to just be like, well, I'm just trying to make everything components now, so screw it. I'm just going to like throw these classes in wherever. But I do like what you're saying about identifying like what the component really is. And usually, well, a lot of the time it isn't just one column as, as a component. It's usually a, a module that maybe it's you know two 25% columns and a 50% column, and that represents some sort of idea, and maybe that's going to look different than mm-hmm. the... Uh, section below it at different responsive sizes or whatever and you can kind of try and encapsulate that stuff more together so i think that's a good way of thinking about it for sure and you're saying you basically do the same thing with the utility stuff right so if you have a utility class rather than having like a u pull right in your uh Mm -hmm. in your markup you would mix that in as well yeah because it's it's a utility to save us time in basically typing those same things out or remembering what the CSS definition for that particular style looks like. But the moment you make it a utility class, then you have to define that it's always going to behave the same way every single time you use it everywhere, which means it's either so fine-grained a use case that it's basically just in like line CSS or it's so broad that you're always going to run into some situation where you want it to change differently on one element in a particular context than another. The simplest answer for that is, what happens when you break it down to half width or half height or whatever? Well, some of them should have that utility class change in X way. Some of them should have it changed in Y way. Well, all of a sudden your utility class is useless, but you can choose to use or not use your utility mixins based on media queries without a problem in the definition of the class. Yeah. Do you ever find yourself um, kind of getting paralyzed uh, by trying to extract really good names for things like this sometimes oh, lord yes that's why i keep saying the thing about left rail and right rail because i think that's actually what they ended up being named and now somebody's going to go view source and gene.com and judge me this were the <laughs> pre-bem days but um yeah and sometimes what i like to think about is just i know that it's a module like i mean i love uh ian landsman and andre butov's 
podcast, and one of the things they joke about all the time is the hardest thing is naming thing. You've got this great idea. It's going to take you six hours to program it, and it takes you a month and a half to come up with a name for it. It's the same kind of thing. I, I, I want to identify that's a module. I'm going to work on naming it, but if I need to rename it, you know, grep, you know, universal find and place, that's a thing for a reason. I, I need to identify what it is. And that's part of the problem with the semantic thing is we are so terrified of both naming it and never using something that wasn't perfectly semantic that we ended up in the descendant selector house. So it's like, no, I just care that I identify that it's a module. And uh, one of the things that really helped, it's interesting because it's both helped and hurt me at times is, um, so Nicole Sullivan did a, a article about OOCSS where she really introduced the concept of the media object. It was one of the most commonly referenced OOCSS modules that, that's ever gone around, and it's brilliant. And it both helps and hurts in terms of identifying them. So the way it helps is taking a big page that we would normally look at and we'd say, okay, there's white there, there's blue there, there's lines there, whatever, and saying, no, 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 fuzz your eyes a little bit and see the repeating patterns. And so it's really, really valuable for us to start looking at our pages and say, what is a module that happens over and over and over again? The problem is a lot of us look at that and say, oh, from this, I'm going to extract a utility class that says, frequently I have this visual layout, image to the left, text to the right, title on the top. And I'm going to apply that utility class over and over and over and over again. The problem is we lost a little bit too much of our semantic understanding there. And what happens if that layout changes, again, for one use of it differently than it changes for another because of their context or because of their content or something like that? So for me, I try to identify, use that same thing, but move in a little bit in the semantic direction. I wish I had like a really great, you know, ratio for it or whatever, but I try to move in the direction of saying, okay, what am I identifying about that? Well, what it is, is, for example, in the media object, it may end up being um, a post with attribution, or it is a piece of content with title and profile picture or something like that. And of course, I need to come up with a better name. But that exact same layout might mean something else somewhere else. I will make those two separate modules because I don't want my modules to be defined purely based on how they look, because the, how they look could change in a million different contexts. I want them based on what they do. And so two modules with different names might look exactly the same in one context. I'm going to separate them out and define them separately. And maybe I'll use a mix in or an extend or whatever to make not probably not an extend, but a mix in to make them look this make it easier to make them look the same. But I want to define them separately because I know that they are going to change separately. Just like you said, identify the things that are going to change together Everything that has the same float layout is not always going to change together. Therefore, you shouldn't use classes based on those name classes based on those float layouts. Totally makes sense. One thing that I'd be interested in pushing back on a little bit there that please, uh, well, not in the sense that I have an answer, but <laughs> a lot of the time you'll have something that maybe has a name on your page um, as far as what it means for that page, but the visual representation of it is something that gets reused in other places. And it's a complicated set of styles. Like say you have like horizontal tabs or something, right. Mm -hmm. And the styling to create this set of horizontal tabs is fairly complex and fairly involved. And you have some important part of the page that has like a name, like maybe like your primary navigation is a set of horizontal tabs, but you also have some stuff further down on the page. That's, not really important. That's also horizontal tabs. Like, would you attach the horizontal tabs class to like your primary nav space horizontal tabs, or would you mix that horizontal tabs into the 
primary nav? That's a fantastic question. That's a perfect example of of where my thinking is breaking down. So you you got me. I I it depends on I think how tightly tied the concept of the thing is with the the tabs themselves, um, like the display, the particular display style. Um, it also depends on how those tabs are going to change in different contexts. Like, for example, if I just know tabs are tabs are tabs and this thing loses all coherence without being tabs, well, I'm going to couple it more tightly there with actually directly defining the styles in line in, in the, you know, in, in, in mix or whatever in the markup. Um, well, no, actually, if it's more tightly coupled, yeah, yeah, no, you're right, in the markup. Um, but often you're in a situation where tabs happens to be the layout you choose to use to define something, to, to present something in a particular context. Yeah. You know, in, there's a, there's, for example, there's in my SAS Karani, there's a, the settings sub nav. So when you're in like the settings page, there's a, there's this sub nav. And I just thought the really, be, the best way to do this is tabs along the top. Um, but those tabs, you run out of space for the tabs. Um, once you get down to a certain width, and for the beginning, you know, year and a half of the app, I just said, well, I can't add in more settings pages because <laughs> I ran out of width. I mean, that really happened. Sure. And so what it ne- it can't be, it can't be tabs. It's, it's setting subnav or it's page subnav or something like that. And I need to use something, whether it's a mix and a whatever to say at this particular context, I want to display it in a tab like manner, but I need to leave myself the freedom to change the way that displays elsewhere. And I can't have something named tabs that in half of the ways at times it's displayed, it's like an, an unordered list. That's just, that's not a tab. That's a, that's an unordered list or it's a navigation section. Well, you know what I mean? So, so I, I think that a lot of it is going to just depend on what is the identity of this thing. And, and, and I try, and again, I'm not focusing like, oh, it's always about semantics, but I'm focusing on trying to separate out the presentation versus the identity and kind of really define its class. And often I'll do both, you know, if, if, even if I'm like, well, it's it's totally defined tabs. It's it's meaningless without tabs. But we're still using tabs twenty times across the site. I will probably apply the tab style, and then I'll also apply an appropriately named style that will do any little bits of customization for it or something like that, just to give myself the freedom. Or I'll just have twenty different styles across the site, each of which merely extend the tab styles, just so I can use it a little bit more semantically. It all depends on the context, and yeah. So it's definitely no hard fast rule here, unfortunately. Cool. One other thing I was going to ask about which is something I've run into, especially when you're trying to do responsive layouts, is a lot of the time at some page width, you'll have a group of things that are together and they should be represented as one subcomponent. Say like maybe in the uh, heading of an article, you have like the author and you have like the date and you have the actual title. And maybe at some size, you want the date and the author to be next to each other underneath the title but as it shrinks all of a sudden you want the date to be above the title and you want the author to be below the title do you have a strategy for trying to name things when uh things are really part of the same maybe they're both like post meta is like the name of the the group of elements but because of the way that you want to display them at a certain size you can't keep them in the same container and they have Mm -hmm. to be split up I I think your example may be a little more extreme than what we run into, but something I'll often run into is like I've got my my nice little theoretical concept of what this thing is, and then reality says, well, that div you're using to wrap it is really going to be a little too constricting to apply whatever particular styles you want to it. Sorry, buddy. What I try to do is I try to keep things as 
pure as possible and then i enable myself to have more elements wrappers or whatever that are hackier and just do the hacks on them if that makes sense and i don't know if this answers your particular question but like so for example i will have my i'll I'll design it as i think it's like purest essence is whatever that ends up being for the thing and i'll name it as its purest essence is whether it's post meta or whatever um and then i'll either wrap it in another class that's that is you know that is the kind of the, the the cheat um and name it such or um i'll put a modifier on it and it says well post meta you know hyphen hyphen so using bm and it's the post meta in wherever we are in the page you know page title or post meta news page or whatever and then i'll do the kind of crazy weird hacks in there and i may even end up using needing to use descendant selectors to do the hacks there to to switch what's on top of what or whatever um but what i want to do is isolate the hackiness as much as possible to a really really small scope so whether it's that one weird hacky div container that's only there in that one space or it's that one class modifier name that you only apply there i try to separate it so it's still a beautiful pure you know oop element and then assume that you know the hacks doing all the hack work and the moment i take the hack off i can still drop that same post meta element anywhere else i have in the site without feeling the the burden of having to overcome or worry about how the hacks are the hacks are going to affect it and it kind of comes from again it's uh, css wizardry he i think it was him he had a a concept of a shame.css file i don't know if you ever heard of that so the shame.css file really helped me think through this because what it is is like look we always have to do things that don't fit into our dream world and his theory was you put it in a shame.css and then later you fix it. And I like that theory. But even that theory, it's a little bit of a dream world because sometimes you put it in a shame.css. And for anybody who's not familiar, it basically says there's always things that you do that you're embarrassed about, whether you don't know how to do it or there's just a situation you didn't anticipate or you're rushing to meet a deadline. When you do that hacky stuff that you're embarrassed about, go put it into a single file that is the hacky stuff lives here and name it shame.css or shame.scss. So it can be easily identified and you can always say, hey, man, it's a rainy day. I'm going to go knock off a few things off of shame.scss or whatever. Or you can see how many people, how many lines each person is committed to that file and get to shame people. Um, so not that we would ever do that. Um, <laughs> but sometimes things need to live there forever, um, in my experience. But they're there only. And and I know that it's used once. And I know that it's defined in shame.css. And I know it's basically a hacky modifier being applied to still beautiful, neat code. And I think to prior, to have, prior to having that freedom to do that, I would have hackily modified my whole system to try and accommodate this one hacky weird situation. And hacking for that one situation would have kind of semi-messed up my mental model of the whole thing. And so now I'm like, keep the mental model pure and just in one piece somehow one chunk one class one wrapper one whatever do all your hacky crap there and just only use it this one spot if that makes sense yeah totally do you have any uh good resources or anything that you'd like to mention that people can look into to learn more about some of the stuff that we've been talking about like the bm stuff or the ocss i know we really didn't get deep enough into really trying to explain that stuff from scratch but there might be some people that uh want to learn more about that stuff is there anything uh any quick references you can think of off the top yeah. of your head that you would recommend? Yeah, well, shameless plug, uh, but it's useful. Useful. I wrote a blog post on my blog, mattstauffer.co, that is basically an intro to all these. So just go to mattstauffer.co and kind of scroll through my old posts and you'll find one there. And I say that because I reference all of them and I think I link all the things I'm about to talk to sure. there. So that's my little show notes. 
Um, and the things that have been influential for me in this world. So um, Smacks is one, S-M-A-C-S-S. And it was kind of the first time I approached somebody actually talking about organizing your CSS. And he doesn't go too deep in the object-oriented CSS world, but he says, hey, look, do modules and you should, you know, segregate your code into, you know, meaningful chunks. So that's one of them, you know, separate the the modules from the, you know, this from the that. Um, so that was one. Um, Nicole Sullivan was really influential at the beginning of OOCSS. And so a few of her articles from years ago are, you know, kind of required reading. And uh, I think it's his name is Harry Roberts, I think, the CSS wizardry guy. He has also been pretty darn influential there. And he wrote, I think, the best post I've read about um, BEM that's called Mind Bending. Um, so look that one up, and that's really good. He, he describes a mildly modified BEM syntax that I really value. Um, and then there's one that my, um, my friend Benson shared with me that we actually use a lot, which is uh, Bootstrap Without the Debt. And this is not quite what we talked about here, but basically it's a way to use SAS and Bootstrap to bootstrap up a site really quickly using your own names and then use SAS to have your own class names extend um, the Bootstrap uh, styles. And then later you can just swap out the Bootstrap styles by actually styling them yourself. So it's a kind of way to, for, especially for someone who either A is like, look, I got a prototype in Bootstrap, but I'm going to hand it off to a front end developer later. Or someone who says, look, I just don't have the time to write it, but can I like use Bootstrap's kind of default classes to make my life a little bit easier? Well, yeah, write these class names and then just extend or include or whatever it is in your particular system, the Bootstrap classes into those beautiful class names that you wrote. Um, and then later, theoretically, you can swap them out. So, okay, so BEM. I mean, in general resources, I mean, CSS Wizardry is brilliant. Chris Coyer is absolutely incredible, and everything CSS Tricks has ever done is gold. Um, and, yeah, I think that's what I got. There's two that I'd like to add that were really helpful for me. Um, Nicholas Gallagher, the guy who's responsible for the clear fix that everybody uses mm -hmm. for the last several years, he wrote a really, really good article called... Um, about semantics and front-end architecture, I think it's called. Hmm. I'll make sure I link to it. That was probably the thing that caused me to totally flip the way I was thinking about writing stuff. And uh, that's kind of where he talks about the single-class versus multi-class approach and his kind of opinion on what a semantic class really is or if it's even a real thing that matters was hmm. really interesting to hear from someone who's worked on some really big sites. The other one that's a very, very recent article, but it's really long and goes into a, a lot of cool stuff was the article that Fat wrote about the CSS at Medium. Did you ever see that article? I'm going to start some drama. I, oh, no. Okay. I like the article. There's a, We do a lot of really similar stuff, but the way he wrote it drove me absolutely nuts. <laughs> it's like, you're so... Anyway, never mind. I'm not going to start the drama. I thought it was a great article. I think everybody should read it. We do a lot of the same stuff. I think it was really Awesome. So I'll be sure to link to all that stuff. Is there anything else that you want to talk about or anything you want to plug or anything? Um, well, I've, I've sent out a couple talk proposals to speak on basically objects-oriented CSS and the ways that really understanding object-oriented design, um, the kind of some, some of the stuff I've shared here about how really understanding object-oriented design well um, can influence our CSS. So whether or not you're a back-end developer, um, First of all, hopefully I'll get those talks. You should follow me on Twitter at Stauffer Matt. 
um, so that you can see if I end up um, getting those talks and I'll put the videos online, slide decks, and all that kind of stuff. But I would really highly recommend whether or not you're a backend developer, learning the basics of OOP because that has been so influential in me writing this well. And if you already know them really well, then start thinking about having, how to apply them to your CSS. If you don't, learn you know what solid means and you know single responsibility principle law of demeter all this kind of stuff and just start thinking and if you whether or not you've seen it before read through them and think through them as they apply to the front end and realize that there's actually a lot more overlap there than you might think so that's just kind of a i guess that's not a plug but admonition so if any conference organizers are listening to this and matt's whoop, whoop. submitted a <laughs> a proposal to your conference you should definitely accept it because he's a great speaker and uh he's got a lot of interesting things to say so um so what's the best way for people to get in touch with you if anyone wants to chat about some of the stuff or ask you questions or um well i'm often on um irc it's the on the the laravel channel and um I, i spend more time than i should there um but for folks who aren't laravel inclined or aren't as geeky um, at Stauffer Matt is definitely the best. So mattstauffer.co um, and then at Stauffer Matt on Twitter. Um, Stauffer is S-T-A-U-F-F-E-R. I think that's it. Yeah. I mean, I'm always on Twitter. Always, always, always. And I try to, when I learn new things, um, I love, I'm still a teacher at heart. So like it gives me like too much joy to write a blog post and share it with people. And I'm like, all giddy. I've got like two blog posts waiting to be published right now. And I'm like, when can I publish them? <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, check out my website, check me out hit me up, follow me on Twitter and hit me up about anything. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for coming on and for talking about this stuff with me. I definitely learned a lot and hope other people got a lot of good stuff out of it too. Thank you, Adam. And this was such a pleasure. I'm really excited. <laughs> awesome. So, uh, yeah, we'll see what people think of the very first episode. If anyone has any feedback or any suggestions for who they'd like to see on or just topics that people would want to hear more about, definitely hit me up on Twitter, too. I'm just Adam Wathen on Twitter. So that wraps up, I guess, the very first episode of uh, Full Stack Radio. And hopefully we'll see you guys again in a couple weeks.